Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. Today's topic is the 1968 film, 2001, A Space Odyssey. So this plot, which, you know, may be somewhat confusing for some. I know famously Rock Hudson went to the premiere... And at the end of the film, he came out and said, would anybody mind telling me what the hell that was all about? <laughs> so or sometimes I always complain, like, everybody knows this story. I think we do need to clarify a few things. Yeah. So it's told pretty much in three parts. The beginning, we are millions of years in the past. We have these eight human, uh, what's the name? Of hominids. They're hominids. hominids. Yeah. They're, they're in the African desert. In the beginning, we see them. The you know they're very primitive. They have a watering hole, but they get pushed out by this other rival group. They are also in fear of this leopard that always attacks them. Then one night, while they're sleeping, this monolith appears. And as the monolith appears, they become a little bit smarter. We see the main cre- the main uh, leader of that tribe. He uses a bone, and he starts smashing things. Yeah. And it's, you know, the famous uh, Thus Spoke Zarathustra music where he's banging it, and he's realizing how to use a weapon. Yeah. And as we see the montage, they're using it to hunt. And then the next time they run into this rival tribe, and they're fighting over this watering hole, he uses the weapon, beats one of them up, scares the rest of them off, and so now they have a, it's, it's showing evolution. And then famously, one of the most famous match cuts in film history he flings the bone in the air and then we start our second part we're now two we're now in 2001 or the futuristic world of 2001 which i have to interrupt and say i can't tell you how disappointed i am yeah. we're not even anywhere near <laughs> it's, uh, it's wonderful. 19 years ago and we're nowhere near it you know? <laughs> yeah. it's like yogi berra says the future ain't what it used to be <laughs> yeah. but um now we are following a man named Haywood Floyd on his way to the moon, a moon base called Clavius. Clavius, yeah. And there is something strange going on there. He is a Russian friend, and she asks him what's there's rumors of a pandemic going on there. But he's very tight-lipped. He can't tell them. And then so we realize that as he goes to the station, there was another monolith found. And it was buried in the moon for... Millions, millions of years, of years. Yeah. and they're realizing that this obviously is not something humans did so this is somewhat the most the first signs of extraterrestrial life and as he goes into the area where the, the dig site he touches it and it emits this strange high pitch frequency wave and it's very ear piercing and then it's sending a signal a, a beamed signal very powerful beamed signal to jupiter yes right and so that begins our next part. We follow the discovery, it's, and we meet Frank and Dave and the robot, the HAL 9000, and they're on their way to discover the source of that. And HAL 9000 is this brilliant computer. He runs the entire ship practically. He has eyes everywhere. You see that it's everywhere on the ship. He protects a fault in their satellite machine, saying in 72 hours this thing will completely shut down. They... they investigate it and they realize there is nothing wrong with it and they confer with their headquarters and they say your HAL 9000 is in fault and they plan to reboot it and restart it. They plan but not telling HAL but they think they get away with it but HAL can read lips so HAL says you're going to jeopardize this mission I can't let you do that 
he kills Frank and refuses to let ha- um when Dave goes to retrieve the body, he refuses to let Dave back into the, the ship. Dave is able to get through the airlock, and then he goes into the main mainframe system of Hal and disconnects him. But as he disconnects him, the message plays of what the mission really is going to Jupiter, and that's where we get the last part, where Dave goes on his little pod ship to Jupiter, a monolith appears, and then he, for the next 20, 30 minutes, we, he sees this incredible array of images and everything and basically it leads him he's in this old style victorian room and as he gets out of the pod he becomes progressively much older after he gets the pod we see him drinking and once he drops a wine glass he looks around and now we see him on the bed and he's looking like he's about to near death as the monolith looks over him and then he dies and then we see him now as a space child and we see this space child going towards Earth and looking at it, and that's the way the movie ends. Yes. And I know that's going to be compu- confusing for a number of people, namely Rock Hudson. And there yeah. was a lot of people who were like Rock Hudson, even critics at the time, who were saying, would you mind telling me what the hell this all was all about? Yeah. Uh, that, and that's about, that's basically it. I, I just, I thought the... Uh if I read that story right, I don't even think Rock Hudson made it through the movie. Didn't he leave early? Yeah, yeah. I think he did. Um, but yeah, it, it naturally does raise that question, what the hell is this movie about? And uh, it's interesting to look at it, not only from the perspective of the film, but from the perspective of the novel that was essentially being written at the same yes. time as the film. And if you look at both of them together, um, y- you can answer that question fairly Definitely, uh, at least with regard to the book, um, Kubrick decided to keep things somewhat ambiguous yes. uh, in the film. But there's still enough there, especially after multiple viewings, if you've seen it enough times. Um, you can kind of see that the story is that this is uh, these, these obelisks, these monoliths, are um, artifacts of a very ancient, uh, apparently interstellar culture uh, with very advanced technology. And they have an interest in uh, shepherding along uh, uh, potentially intelligent life forms, uh, aiding them in in getting to the point in their evolution that this uh, society apparently is, or at least had gained up to the point of their creation of the uh, monoliths. Now, what's kind of interesting in the book is that they had, uh, obviously, because it had been several million years since they had planted both of the monoliths, the, the one with the group of hominids and the other one on the moon, they planted it at the same time, right? Yes. Um, uh, they've apparently evolved even beyond that, the point of that technology uh, by the time that Dave Bowman shows up at Jupiter to uh, take that interstellar, uh, okay, here's 60s reference, trip. <laughs> <laughs> that you know, reading about the, a lot of hippies really liked this movie. People yeah. said, "Whoa, man!" Because they were <laughs> under the influence of certain drugs, yes. and it was like the biggest mind trip of all time. Right. Man. So this was and, very popular at the time for that you yeah. know, trippy sequence. So, and, and what's interesting in the book is you see that it 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 is in the more mundane uh, sense a trip, uh, in that it, it's kind of. They're kind of writing a wormhole in space-time, essentially kind of a shortcut to the home planet of whoever this alien civilization is. 
And uh, um, there in the book, Dave Bowman um, is sitting in that bed, and the obelisk is there, and it, it gives him kind of the same light show that had, it had given the ape uh, moon watcher back at, in, in prehistory on Earth. And as you're, mesmer- you're the subject mesmerized by the light show, what the monolith does is it infuses information. Uh, not only is it were cultural information and reworks the synapses in your brain so that you're capable of doing things you were not capable of doing before, but apparently it also reaches into uh, genetic and epigenetic information and changes those things so that, at least in the case of the hominid, they're, they're capable of doing things uh, intellectually that they were unable to do before. Um, it's, I love that part of the book, and I love that part of the film. They show that um, um, there, is, there is food on the hoof surrounding these hominids in what is essentially a very desolate location in Africa. Um, and, you know, they're up to that point having a very hard time uh, providing for themselves and they're scavengers and they're you see them digging in the dirt and finding little grubs and plants and occasionally maybe uh, an insect or two for protein or everything but all the while they're completely oblivious to these tarsiers that live around them which are essentially a uh, tasty bacon mm-hmm. <laughs> right and the um uh, monolith uh, having made these changes in that troop they are uh, they're capable of conceiving of using tools as weapons to kill them and provide themselves with a steady and predictable uh, source of meat protein um, so that happens there but it also happens up in the future with dave in the room arthur c clark in the book goes to great pains to say, you know, it's the same geometric patterns and so forth. And as this happens to Dave, he is being uh, uh, modified in a way similar to the way Moonwatcher was modified, but in such a way that uh, he's going to be capable of existing uh, in a form that isn't in any straightforward way physical anymore. And he's also going to be able to manipulate his environment in a much more direct way. And mm-hmm. Clark's ambiguous about exactly what that would be, primarily because he's speculating. Um, but um, it has something to do with being able to actually take and, 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 and twist and modify the fabric of space-time. And, and literally do things that, from our point of view, are magic. Right, and, mm-hmm. and I don't know if you remember this, but Arthur C. Clarke had three kind of laws that he formulated about uh, future technology, and the last one is the most famous one, and it said something like, "I'm not going to get the exact wording right here, but um, a sufficiently advanced technology will be indistinguishable from magic." And I think that's kind of what he's illustrating in the book, at any rate, right, and. Uh, Dave ends up being the first human being that's transmogrified in this way to where he's no longer in, in that obvious way, a physical being. Now he's actually inhabits space time in some kind of direct way and is able to modify it merely by thinking about what he wants. And 
that's, I think, his mission there as he's uh, hovering over Earth. They've sent him back on purpose. They've done this for humanity. And in the book, he detonates orbital nuclear weapons as kind of a first step. Look, we're not doing this anymore. Yes. <laughs> you know? Um, and then, you know, it's left hanging. But uh, And I also don't know what the sequels say about what Dave does. but Because um, I actually just watched 2010 for the first time. Yeah. I haven't read the book. But you see him a little bit, and he, like, contacts his fiance who he left behind. And there's a scene, I guess his mother is dying, and she's in the hospital. And there's a scene where there's, like, a comb floating in the air, and it's combing her hair. And she has a smile on her face, supposedly recognizing it's Dave. He has a very vague messages about, you know, how he's evolved beyond Dave. He doesn't know who Dave is anymore. It's sort of left vague. Yeah, yeah. And, and I know that for some reason the... the uh, the uh, extraterrestrial civilization decided it would be good be a good idea in that film. I don't know about the book, but probably in the book too. And we'd have to ask Clark, but it's too late to ask him now. But um, uh, they they think it's a good idea to add mass to Jupiter and make it a second sun, right? Don't they yeah. do that? And that's one of the things that happens in the film. And my first reaction is, well, we don't have nighttime anymore. No, that's a bummer. Uh, yeah. Guys, why would you do that? <laughs> you know? yeah. There's a lot of things wrong with that second movie. But yeah. This isn't a review of 2010. It's a review yes. of 2001. Yes. Because you're seeing these monoliths, you know, sort of evolve us to all these new forms of evolution. And you kind of, just like we the very first show we talked about is Arrival. Mm -hmm. And you're wondering... Well, why are they doing this for us? Why do we deserve this generosity? And with, you know, when you think about arrival, because the message is, you know, you know, so many hundreds of years down the line, we're going to need your help. And this is how you're going to be advanced if we give you this gift. But this one, you don't, you still don't know why they're doing this. You yeah. know what they're doing, but you don't know why. And I, yeah, and it, it, it seems to be, uh, and this is from what I know in the book, too, having read the book. It seems to be more or less just a completely uh, altruistic act on their part. They, 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 they've apparently seeded the uh, monoliths in a great many solar systems, expecting that most of them will fail. The, the life forms will not get to the point where they will have mm -hmm. space travel and do something equivalent to us to going to the moon and triggering that, that second signal. Yeah, and in the book, we it, they don't show this in the movie, but in the book, as he's going through that sequence at the end he goes through the he sees like this abandoned spaceport yes as he i think he's going through jupiter he sees like the crap the remnants of a crash on jupiter yes. of some uh alien spaceship yeah so he's this looks like this race maybe this is the last remnants of that species I either that or i was thinking um it, and this is the thing i don't like about the film actually is that last sequence where dave's going through the tunnel Right. Mm -hmm. it, it is just too 60s psychedelic, too abstract. Um, the book does a better job. You can, you can see that he's traveling through a, a wormhole in space time. And it's essentially, uh, for lack of a better term, kind of like a subway system for the mm -hmm. for the galaxy. Right. And you do see these. Uh, he goes into some detail describing this very large space station, spaceport mm -hmm. that has been damaged. So it's been abandoned for a long time. Now, that makes me think, though, that, that kind of given the theme he has, the overall theme, that uh, the eventual path of evolution of this um, uh, advanced civilization was beyond physical, uh, a straightforwardly physical existence, right? I, 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 I took that as being that, okay, here are some uh, 
civilizations previous to ours who have started using this subway system. Mm -hmm. And at some point, they also evolved beyond the need for spaceships and so forth. So this is just their leftovers, mm, right? Interesting. Yeah, yeah that's because that's even though, you know, even though you can say the, the infant is kind of a symbol or metaphor for this next stage of existence, it's not completely spiritual, right? Mm-hmm. It, 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 as I think Clark mentions in the book, they're still, as it were, tied to the space-time fabric of the universe. So in that sense, they're still of this world, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's some theories. I don't know the details. I'm, I'm probably going to get this wrong in saying it, but I'll do it anyway. There's some theories according to which matter is essentially just tangled up space-time, right? String theory. Um, so apparently these people, these civilizations have been able to uh, take their mentality and take it out of the biological realm. And then for a period of time, they had it in, in a electronic realm or mechanical realm, right? Um, uh, artificial intelligence, more or less like what we think of and HAL is a good example of. But then they eventually moved back out of that to this last stage where they actually inhabit the space-time fabric and can manipulate it. Um, so that's how I, I read the abandoned spaceport. Yeah. yeah. And so the question I always have, one of those questions I have with these monoliths and you know, how they've ushered in and helped us over the years, I kind of wonder what that does for things such as Darwin's theory of evolution or even just the whole concept of religion. Yeah. yeah. Because... Are these the gods people think of when they wrote the Bible or the Quran or the Talmud? Is this what they thought because these things have ushered us in all these over these years? Yeah. And if this is how we're evolving, then what? how does Darwin's theory still apply? Or is it all of the reason why we evolve, why species evolve into their next stage? Is it all entirely due to the help they get from the monoliths? Yeah. And again, this, this kind of harkens back to uh, Clark's uh, third law, you know, all... You could you could modify it slightly to say that any sufficiently advanced civilization is indistinguishable from deity. You could say that, and from our point of view, they would be essentially gods. So that's certainly one reading of this. Um, it would be keeping in with uh, in keeping with pop cultural trends that were very much alive in the '60s. There was uh, Eric von Donneken's books on ancient astronauts, right and uh, that's still alive and kicking uh, today on the History Channel with that mm-hmm. goofy guy. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's aliens, right? That yeah, guy. Yeah, okay. um, I can't remember his name. George, George Greek something. Something or the other. Um, so th- there's that element, right? Um, but more generally speaking, uh, you, you, there's also uh, the question that arises that you, you, you do very well uh, ask here is, uh, I th- and I think Clark's answer is interesting, is can completely unguided processes bring about uh, uh, the uh, origin of life? Can they bring about the origin of intelligent life? And the answer that Clark seems to be giving is one that I think has resonance with religious tradition, creation tradition, Right. Uh, it says, uh, no, not alone and unaided, it needs nudges, right? And what we had at least twice in the history of humanity in the film is those kinds of nudges coming from the monoliths. They infuse information. Once again, 
in 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 the brains of the hominid, right? But also in their genetic and epigenetic uh, makeup that allows them to move on to the next stage of development. And apparently the, the, the message here is this would not have happened without that outside aid. There are obvious religious resonances in that. And getting back to, um, we talked about, you know, with the famous Rock Hudson criticism of people, that's not the only criticism people have of this movie who don't like it. It's just the fact that, you know, it's hard to follow. Another thing they feel that they don't like is that all the human characters are particularly very cold and emotionless. And this is a criticism that's been levied at almost all of Stanley Kubrick's movies. But they say that Hal... Which is ironic. He's the robot. He's the most sympathetic character. He's the one that shows the most emotions. Frank and Dave are complete. You know, you have when Frank looks at the video from his parents wishing him a happy birthday. It's he's just like whatever. He could care less. He's completely <laughs> indifferent to it. Yeah. Dave shows hardly any emotions. Even somebody like um, Haywood Floyd. He's very proper, friendly, but, you know, he's not, like, outgoingly, hey, how you doing? Let me slap you on the back or something. He's just yeah. very, how are you doing? Nice to yeah. meet you. Is that the point of the movie, that we feel more sympathy for Hal than anyone else, or is that criticism valid, do you think? I, I'm not, I'm honestly not quite sure what to make of it. I think part of the reason he, he does that is because the, the main characters in this, the main character in this film is is almost not humanity. It... Yeah. Uh, humanity is the supporting character, uh, and the main character is this very uh, diffusely and ill-defined uh, extraterrestrial culture, almost. So I, maybe that's part of it, and I just wanted to show that these humans are a very small part in this grand history. And like most humans, mm-hmm. are just kind of ordinary and, dare we say, dull. That could be part of it. Um the it, the in on the on the other side hal is the most engaging character because uh, not only because he rises uh, raises these questions about the, the potential for artificial intelligence right um he has apparently for instance passed the turing test if you know what the turing test is mm-hmm. um uh it's he's his reactions are indistinguishable uh, in terms of uh, typical human reactions when you have conversations with him or anything like that. Um, so uh, he, he's interesting in that regard, but he's also interesting in, in, in the regard that he has programmed within him something that is something like an, uh, an analog, if it isn't actual, sense of duty. Um, we don't really know. Once again, it's ambiguous. I mean, he, he may just merely be fo- following programs and algorithms and spitting out audio and taking actions on the body of the ship, so to speak, uh, without uh, actual any kind of conscience going on. Uh, we don't know, but he sure acts like he has one, right? And he's been put in a terrible position by the people back on Earth who probably didn't think carefully enough when they programmed him. He basically said, no matter what, get the mission accomplished. And then once the uh, AE-35 unit fails, and he predicts failure, and they bring it in, and they find nothing wrong with it, 
uh, it makes him realize that maybe Frank and Dave are going to uh, disconnect me and then the mission will not be accomplished. Why is that? Because he's the only one that knows what yes. the mission is in the movie. In the book, they're a little smarter. The people back on Earth, NASA, whoever it was, um, the people in suspended animation also know what the mission is. Um, but they, they put him in a terrible position, and they probably should have given him more definite orders, as it were, uh, not only uh, accomplish the mission, but preserve your humans. And that might have come into conflict, but at least it would not necessarily have led him to do what he did with Dave and Frank. And I think when it comes back to people always say that, you know, the, you know, Frank and Dave are just these completely cold, emotionless, they have no emotions. One of the things I always say, they're on this mission. They've been on it for 18 months. Eventually, any enthusiasm or emotion you have is just going to go out because you've been doing this. It's just going to get routine. And if you don't, if you stray too far, who knows what could happen? It's best to stick to the routine and not get too emotional one way or the other. Yeah. And um, the thing I think the, the movie does better than the book is it, it just it illustrates very well the loneliness of a long distance interplanetary mission because it takes them months and months and months to get to Jupiter. And in the book, they're going to Saturn, which is twice the distance, right? Mm -hmm. So you're bound to suffer the effects of that isolation, even if you have Frank with you and, and with Frank Dave, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so you're, you may just as a kind of a self-preservation mechanism, your affect may lessen, uh, simply like you said, to preserve your sanity, right? So getting close to the end of my questions here, is there anything else you want to bring up? Um, one thing I guess we do should talk about the sequels. You briefly mentioned it. Um, I did not care for 2010, and one of the things that I was kind of unsure about this movie, and I'm still unsure when I watch it, is exactly what our relationship was at the time with the Russians in this movie. Yeah. Because we see there's this scene when, you know, he meets this, uh, she's a professor, she's a Russian professor, and they're friends, and they're grilling him about what's really going on there, and he's, like, telling them, I'm not at liberty to discuss this. Yeah. And, but it seems like he's friends with her. He even, when he, he gives her an offer, if you ever come by the States, you have an open invitation. So it seems that if you're friends with these professors and they're, if you're willing to have them come over to the country, it seems that the Cold War is, is it over or is there a thawing? It's not as bad as it once I, was. I, I was, I, because in the sequel, we'll spoil the sequel a little bit, it's back to, we're on the brink of annihilation. They're both, there's a conflict and they're about ready to fire nukes at each other. But in this one, it seems that they're friends. I don't really know yeah. what their relationship is. I, I think it's a it's a reflection of the period of time in which it was made, or maybe just a little bit later. There is somewhat of a thawing. I still think, and this is made more clear in the book, I still think there's essentially a Cold War going on. The Soviet Union is still a communist state. And there is still the kind of East versus West um, uh, tension. And in the book, China, interestingly, figures more prominently. And it is a power broker and it is still communist. So I, I think that's still going on. And you have to remember that orbital nuclear warheads, too. Yeah. So Star Wars, he predicted Star Wars, by the way. SDI initiative of the Reagan years. And that's interesting because I remember people... 
laughing about the SDI initiative, thinking it was impossible. Well, who was proven right? Um, but yeah, I think that's the answer there. Um, they're, they're both have um, uh, extensive lunar bases, but they're not with each other. And that base, you do see that converse, uh, that, for lack of a better term, spaceport that you see that conversation in. Um, it's kind of a, a central point from which they will go to their different bases. Okay. And there is still security, national security ramifications. And you can't just go to the Russian base on your own. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. There you can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics of the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. You will see that and say, my God, it's full of podcasts. <laughs> if you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds. For each episode, I dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at thesoundofcinema.podomatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker, and that was an excellent line. Yeah. Saying so long, and be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies. Mm-hmm.